passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. The year 2010 uh, changed the word despicable forever. That was the year that uh, the movie and franchise Despicable Me was released. And now, uh, a younger generation, when they hear the word despicable, they no longer think of something that is, uh, should, that is worthy of hatred, but instead they think of really, really, really cute, silly, yellow little creatures called minions. They can't talk, uh, and they are really good at dancing. But that's a far cry from what the word despicable originally meant, and indeed what it still means. Something is despicable if it is worthy of hatred or worthy of contempt. It's a word that is reserved for a passionate hatred, for something that is so vile, something that is so disgusting that your blood boils at the very thought of it. Something like putting kale in a smoothie. This morning, we're going to look at something that was despicable to God. And that despicable thing was the worship of the people of Israel during the day of Malachi. As we will soon see, the worship of this people, of the people of Israel, was hollow. It was lifeless, and it was dead. It was, in the truest sense, something that was despicable to God. God looked at the worship of the people of Israel with contempt. Their worship treated God as despicable, and God saw their worship as despicable as well. Last week we were in the book of Malachi and we just began our series. We looked at the first five verses of this book and we saw really the context of the book of Malachi. The people of Israel had big hopes for the glory of God to return to Israel, to fill their nation because the temple had been rebuilt. They had big hopes and dreams that God would return and usher in his promised kingdom for forever. And yet, decade after decade after decade, it seemed as though God was silent. And as the years passed, they grew skeptical, they grew cynical, they grew doubtful whether God actually even loved them, whether God cared for them, whether God would keep his promises to them. God opens the book as we saw last week, with a passionate reminder that he does indeed love them. He looks to the love that he has had for them, even in their most unlovable state, and he says, I will continue to love you. The same is true for us this morning as well. If God has loved us while we were still sinners, and Scripture tells us that he did and does love us while we are still sinners, then no matter what life may throw our way, we can be confident of God's love for us. We can be confident of God's love for his people. And the book of Malachi, having laid that foundation of confidence that God loves his people, now turns the table and says, we can be confident that God loves us. The question is, do we love God? As I mentioned earlier, our passage here is going to be, uh, it comes across as, as quite harsh. 
God looks at the worship of the people of Jerusalem and says that I would rather have no worship than the worship that you are offering to me because it is despicable, it is disgusting, it is in vain. As we read this passage this morning, I hope it serves as a warning for us. I hope it reminds us that God is a God who actually cares about how we worship, that God takes his worship seriously. He genuinely cares about how you approach him. He doesn't care about your physical posture on Sunday mornings, but he does deeply care about the posture of your heart as you worship him here this morning, as well as when you worship him the rest of your life as you live a life of worship. And so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Malachi. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, and and I hope that we're going to heed this warning. We're going to look at these verses by just looking at uh, considering three pieces of the worship of Israel and our worship this morning. First, the heart of a despicable worshiper or the heart of despicable worship. Second, the substance of this despicable worship. And then finally, we will look at our only hope for true worship. Now, as you approach, as we approach this text, you'll probably notice that this rebuke is directed primarily toward the priests. The priests in the Old Testament were, quote-unquote, the gatekeepers of true worship in Israel, and they were neglecting their duty. Now, by extension, we could say that this passage is primarily directed toward pastors, It's primarily directed toward worship leaders, toward elders, towards those who serve in some sort of leadership in the church. And that might be true, but yet at the same time, I believe this passage is more directly just focused on all of us, whether we are in leadership or not. You see, verses 13 and 14 of this passage make it clear that all of Israel, not just the priests, were guilty of this false worship. All of Israel was guilty of this heartless worship. And in the New Testament, we see that every single Christian is referred to as a priest of the Lord Most High. First Peter chapter 2 tells us this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Revelation 5 tells us that God has purchased us to make us a kingdom of priests. It says this, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So while our passage this morning may be primarily directed toward the priests of Israel, by extension, all of us are in view here. We are the people that God is speaking to, and I pray that we would heed this warning. Let's pray again as we approach God's word. Father, we we come before you uh, with a heart of confession. We know that we are in desperate need of forgiveness, that all too often our worship is distracted, it is defiled, it is a facade while our hearts are far from you. God, we confess that if it were not for your love, the love that you offer to us through your Son, that we would be worthy of condemnation. And so we ask that you would forgive us, God, 
But even as we ask for forgiveness, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, dwelling within each of us, teaching us, shaping us, molding us. God, we ask that you would ignite the spark in our hearts to worship you truly, rightly. That it would not be just something that sparks true worship this morning, but it would be worship each and every day of our lives. We invite you to come, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 6 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it should be uh, posted on the screen behind me. Um, So please follow along as I read aloud. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present these things to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is a strong rebuke for the people of Israel. Let us consider what God is saying in this passage. First, by looking at the heart of their heartless or despicable worship. I think these verses show us two ways that our worship can be despicable, can be disgusting in God's sight. First, worship that is despicable fails to honor God for who he is. It fails to honor God for who he is. Consider verse 6 once more. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Take a look at verse 8 as well. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present those to your governor. Will he accept you 
or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. In these two verses, God presents three different human relationships to prove his point. And he addresses the priest and he says, priests, do you have any kids? How do you expect them to treat you? The applied answer is obvious from the Ten Commandments, that their children are to treat their parents with respect, that those who don't treat their parents with respect could be cut off from the family and even in some cases, in the more severe cases, put to death for their lack of respect and their lack of honor. Priests, God says, do you have any servants? How do you expect them to respond to your requests and to your commands? The implied answer is, again, obvious. According to the law, they obey their masters. Any servants who don't would be punished, and in some cases even put to death for their disobedience, for their lack of respect to their master. And in verse 8, Malachi brings up another human relationship that he doesn't word it in the exact same way as in verse 6. He says, what about governors? Imagine that the governor, the representative of the Persian king, came here this morning. How would you treat him? The implied answer is, again, obvious. From common law, you would honor this government official. Those who didn't could be punished or put to death or enslaved for their lack of respect and honor. So... Malachi says, if earthly sons treat their earthly fathers with respect, where is my honor? Am I not your heavenly father? If earthly servants treat their earthly masters with honor and respect and obedience, where is my honor and respect and obedience? Am I not the heavenly Adonai, the heavenly master, the heavenly Lord? And again, implied, if earthly vassals treat their earthly governors with respect and honor, where is my respect and honor? Am I not the great sovereign king over the whole world? In these verses, Malachi is painting a picture of the heart of despicable, disgusting worship. It is a failure to honor God, to recognize God as who he truly is. When the people of Israel gathered in worship together, they didn't see God as a God who was their father, as God as Lord, as God as sovereign king. Instead, they saw their worship merely as a worship or as a ritual to be observed. They didn't see God as one who was to be feared, to be honored, to be respected, to be obeyed. And I think the same can be said for us today as well. When we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, all too often we can be faced with the temptation to have distracted hearts and distracted minds. We have not prepared our hearts for worship with the saints. There's a preacher among the Puritans. His name was George Swinnick. And he tells us of the importance of us preparing our hearts to recognize who God truly is on a Sunday morning as we gather in worship. He says that this starts on Saturday nights. Consider these words. Prepare to meet your God, O Christian. Go to the bedroom on Saturday night. Prepare your heart to meet God. The oven of your heart, now baked as it were overnight, would now be easily heated the next morning. 
The fire so well raked up when you went to bed would be sooner kindled when you rise. If you would leave your heart with God on Saturday night, you should find it with him on the Lord's Day morning. Do we prepare our hearts for worship? Do we prepare our hearts on Saturday night for worship? Do we prepare our hearts for worship on Sunday mornings? That doesn't mean that we cancel all of our plans, but it does remind us that we cannot hope to honor God as who he truly is, as the great heavenly father, as the mighty Lord, as the sovereign king over the entire universe without first preparing our hearts. If we come into worship cold. And the same can be said throughout the week. We cannot truly worship God as who he is, whether it's in our work or in our parenting or in our leisure, if we have not first prepared our hearts through encountering God each day with fellowship with God each day. The seed of despicable worship is found here. This passage gives us another place where despicable worship is rooted, closely related to that first. The first being a failure to recognize God for who he truly is. And next we see a failure to recognize the greatness of God. Notice how several times in this passage, Malachi tries to stir up the hearts of the Israelite priests by reminding them of how great God is. Consider verse 11. From the rising, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And again in verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God, in response to the lazy, uninterested worship of Israel, points to his own greatness. Despicable worship has at its root a small picture of God. It is a God who can be controlled, a God that can be ignored, a God that can be seen as undeserving of our full devotion, our full honor, our full heart. Malachi is telling us that if your God is small, your worship will be small too. And so this passage forces us to ask, how big is our God? How great is our God? Does he inspire honor? Does he inspire respect, obedience, even holy trembling and fear? Or is he easy to ignore? Easy for us to forget. Easy for us to give lip service to and nothing more. Author Annie Dillard assesses this situation, plaguing all too many of us quite well, when she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so indifferently invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. A sufficient view of the glory of God kills half-hearted, despicable worship. It's going to leave us uncomfortable. It is going to leave us where our lives are changed forever, but it will kill any seed of despicable worship within us and serve as a motivation to right and true worship of our God. The heart of despicable worship lies here. A failure to honor God for who he truly is and a failure to recognize the greatness of God. But you may be wondering, how exactly do these two failures lead us to despicable worship? Well, the answer is found in the first half of verse 13. It says this, And you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. What is it that makes these two thoughts this failure to honor God as who he truly is, and this failure to recognize the greatness of God, what is it that takes these two thoughts and allows them to lead to despicable worship? What allows them to let these thoughts fester and grow? Well, the first half of this verse shows us that these thoughts lead to a boredom with God. It leads to a boredom of right and true worship of him. That's what the priests were saying when they said, what a weariness this is. It was a mind that would rather be elsewhere, a mind that was consumed with other things while going through all of the external actions of worship. Boredom is at the heart of despicable worship. Now, that certainly doesn't mean if you yawn on a Sunday morning or if you get heavy eyelids during a sermon that you are guilty of having this sort of heart toward God. Because this passage tells us that this boredom is actually linked with a different type of attitude. It's something that's far deeper than that. It is linked with an arrogant, an arrogant heart, this arrogant air of superiority. The phrase, you snort at it here, literally just means to turn your nose up at it. The priests were bored with worship, and in addition to that, they were also thinking that they were too good for it. They were above worshiping God. So be very wary of your heart when you think that you are above worship on Sundays and throughout the rest of the week. That is where God finds this heart, this worship so despicable. That's the heart of despicable worship. Now let's consider from a few verses the substance of this false worship. Having looked at the heart, we now look at the ways it plays itself out in our lives. First, we look at verse 8. Verse 8, we see that this worship was merely perfunctory. It was done with little effort. It was done with as little elf effort as possible, little consideration as possible, as little sacrifice, and by extension, as little worship of God as possible. Verse 8 says this, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present those to your governor. Will he accept you or show you any favor, says the Lord of hosts? 
The Old Testament law was very strict on what kind of animals and what quality of animals could be offered for sacrifices. Deuteronomy 15 tells us a little bit of what the regulations were. But if anyone, or but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. God had very specific rules in place for the types of animals that could be sacrificed to him. And there are several reasons for this. First, we have to recognize that sacrifice by itself in the Old Testament would not be enough to save the people. Sacrifice was never meant to save people. A sacrifice without a penitent heart was of no value to the people. And so God lists a number of different specifications, a number of different rules for sacrifice so that they could follow them to a T to show their true heart. Second, sacrifice was supposed to be a sacrifice. That sounds redundant, doesn't it? Sacrifice was supposed to be a sacrifice. It was meant for the people of Israel to actually give something up. It would be far more financially advantageous to offer a sick animal than the best one in your herd. But by offering something that was an actual sacrifice to God, it revealed your heart. And third, sacrifices reflected God himself. Sacrifices reflected God himself. A deformed or impure animal was a reflection on God. It was a declaration that the worshiper believed that God was deformed, that God was impure, that God was unholy and ultimately unworthy of worship. The type of animal you offered in a sacrifice made a statement about what you believed God was like. And so in Malachi's day, the people were intent on following the ritual of offering sacrifices, of offering worship to God, but they refused to actually follow the heart of the law. They refused to actually let the law change them. They refused to actually worship God. It was merely perfunctory. It was just something that was done with as little effort, as little actual worship as possible. The same can be said today as well. Despicable worship to God is that which is done with as little effort as possible. It gives little consideration to the words that we sing, the sermons that are preached, the opportunities to encourage one another through fellowship before and after the service. It's instead just an external action that has little to nothing to do with the heart. Note verse 10, another example of the substance of despicable worship to God, worship that is more concerned with self than worship of God. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Notice those two words, in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Those two words, in vain, are the exact same words that are used but translated differently in 2 Samuel 24. It's a story of David. It's a very similar story. David wants to offer a sacrifice to God, and he wants to offer it at a specific location. And so he goes to the man who owns that land and says, I need to offer a sacrifice here. Let me buy this land. And the man says, no, I'll just give it to you. And David responds this way. But the king said to Aruna, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. 
Notice those three words, cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Those words, cost me nothing, and our passage in Malachi, in vain, the exact same words in Hebrew. The exact same thing is in view here. In Malachi's day, the people were offering sacrifices in vain. They were sacrifices that cost them nothing. They were sacrifices that were of no value. One pastor describes this quite well. He says this, Israel's worship should say, I value God so much that I cannot bring myself to worship in a way that looks as if I love money more than I love him. It must cost me something. It must say that he and not the world is my treasure. The substance of this despicable worship is empty religious activity. It doesn't express the worth of God. In fact, it expresses that our treasure is on the earth and that what we really love is the world. Does your worship, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, does your worship express the worth of God or is it just something that's more concerned with self? You see, all of us were created to worship. All of us worship at all times. The question is not, will we worship? But the question is, what will we worship? So does your worship reveal that you worship God or you worship yourself? That was the question facing the Israelites in Malachi's day. Despicable worship is worship that is more concerned with self than it is with God. Let's keep going. Uh, Second half of verse 13 reveals another facet of this false worship, worship that is purely pragmatic, purely pragmatic. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts. The people of Israel uh, apparently were taking animals that had been dead. They had found them dead, and they offered these as sacrifices. Completely, utterly pragmatic. They were saying, well, it's dead already, so why not just offer it to God because it's going to die then anyway? Exodus explains why this is such a problem to God. Exodus 22, God's talking to the people of Israel, and he says, you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, You shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts of the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. The people of Israel were prohibited from eating these types of animals. And notice the reason why at the beginning of that verse. It says that you shall be consecrated to me. The people were consecrated to God. They were set apart for God. They were holy to reflect God. And because of that holiness, they were not to eat dead animals. So it would be absolutely, utterly unthinkable for them to, not, or to, for them to offer them to a holy God. The lifeless worship in, in Malachi's day is completely and utterly pragmatic. And it is so at the expense of honoring and obeying God. It looked at worship in a way of maximizing profit and minimizing loss. as no category for the holiness of God, for the glory of God. It's only concerned with how we can give lip service to God while at the same time pursuing a life where he is utterly absent. 
The same is true today as well. Worship can be pragmatic. It can be done at the expense of the glory of God. It can be done at the expense of the holiness of God. It can be done at the expense of the worthiness of God. What does your life outside the church say about your worship? Is it completely at odds with the words that you profess on a Sunday morning? Does the good news that you profess have no bearing on your financial decisions, on your entertainment decisions, on your workplace ethics? Is your worship pragmatic? For the people of Israel, it was, and because it was, it was so despicable to God that it professes something completely different about who God is. The Israelites, by offering these lame, sick, deformed, or even dead animals, were saying that they didn't believe that God was holy. They didn't believe that God was worthy of worship. In fact, their actions declared that they believed that God was unholy, that God was unworthy of worship. And the same can be said for us today. When we offer worship that is just like the Israelites, worship that takes little into account of of effort and how to honor God, when it's more concerned with ourselves than God, when it is merely pragmatic and doesn't touch all of our lives, we are saying something about who we believe God is. So let this passage be a warning to us this morning. Verses 9 and 10 give us this warning. It says this, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. I'm going to add a quote here. Excuse me, I'm going to add a quote around that. Quote, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, end quote. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. I think that the the first phrase there in verse 9 is meant to be read in quotes. It makes sense in the context of this book. It makes sense in the context of this passage because it is saying that the priests were looking at God and looking at his character and they were saying, well, we should just seek God. After all, God is gracious, isn't he? And yet at the same time, they made little to no effort to repent of their despicable worship. And so God looks at this attitude. He looks at this attitude that says, well, God's gracious and I'll just keep doing my thing and God will be gracious to me. God looks at that and it is a warning. It says, if we think that we will find any favor with God while we despise his name, we are absolutely deceived. In fact, God would rather have the temple itself closed down than let the people of Israel continue to be deceived about their place with God. For us, it is, it's hard for us to grasp how significant this statement is. The temple is the only place for people to truly worship God in the Old Testament, and God is saying, just shut it all down. Stop all the worship of me, because all you're offering me is garbage. 
If we continue to offer despicable worship to God, he will have no pleasure in us. If our worship is empty, if it is distracted, if it is pragmatic, if it is heartless, if it is merely an action for us, God would rather have it cease entirely than us continue to deceive ourselves into thinking that we truly worship him. Malachi 1, unquestionably a warning. A charge to examine our hearts in worship, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week as we worship God with our lives. And yet, while Malachi 1 is a warning, the greater message of Malachi is one of good news. As we read this passage, I'm sure that each of us can point to a time or many times where our lives are guilty of this type of worship, where we stand condemned. We can think of times where our worship is merely pragmatic, where it's just an act, where our heart isn't into the words that we say or the actions that we do. What is our only hope? Well, the answer is found beginning in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For not, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. While Israel's worship is despicable to God, this passage assures us that there is coming a day when the glory of God will flood the nations. And in a way that is completely unprecedented in the Old Testament up to this point, that glory will not just flood the nations, but it will be found throughout the nations. This is not saying that the people of the nations will come and worship at the temple, but this is saying that there will be a time where the temple is no longer necessary. That sacrifice and offering will be, ordered, or will be offered up to God without the temple, and God will be great among the nations. How is it possible that this could be? The answer is found in the one who is the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus. There is now no need for a temple to encounter God because God has come to earth and we have encountered God through his son. Jesus describes the significance of this in John chapter four. He says, Jesus, it says this, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The glory of God, the right and true worship of God, will one day flood the nations because the new temple, Jesus, has superseded the old. But Jesus is not just the new temple. Jesus is not just the way for us to connect to God. He is also the perfect worshiper. He is also the only one of us who has perfectly honored God 
with all of his life. He is also the only one of us who has never once doubted to recognize God's greatness in worship. He is the only one who has always had a heart that is not distracted in worship. He is the only one who recognizes how good God is. He is the only one of us who has ever offered pure, undefiled, spotless worship to God for every single moment of his life. And it is in his beautiful, faithful, perfect worship that we find our only hope. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have, no more. I have more. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Our only hope for right and true worship is found in the person of Christ It is found in placing our confidence, not in our ability to have a heart that is undistracted, not in our ability to prepare our hearts to honor God, but instead to look to him who did honor God with his entire life. For us to offer true and acceptable worship to God, we must look to Christ. And indeed, that's what this passage is about. The main point of this text this morning is simply this. Any worship that is not enthralled with the person of Jesus, with the greatness of Jesus, is contemptible worship. Any worship that is not enthralled with how great and beautiful and marvelous Jesus is, is despicable worship. We should absolutely see this passage as a call to examine our hearts. We should absolutely see this passage as a way to see whether, to judge whether our worship is acceptable or not to God. We should absolutely see this passage about the importance of us having right and true worship when we approach God. But even more so, it is a grace when we fail To look to the one who did not fail. To look to his greatness. To look to his glory that is found in Christ Jesus. And maybe you've never looked to his greatness before. You've never looked to Christ as the object of your worship this more. Today, God is calling you to leave behind your own efforts. Your own desires to please God through yourself. And instead look to the one who is pleasing to God. Talk with me. 
Talk with one of our church leaders after the service on how to take the first steps in offering right and true worship to God that is found in the new temple, that is found in Christ. For others this morning, your passion for God has faded. Your passion of God, for God has cooled. Heed the warning of this passage. Repent. Repent of your worship that is of no value, your worship that is despicable to God. Look to the glory of God that is in Christ and honor him and your worship with a whole heart. For all of us, let us remember any worship that is not enthralled with the greatness of Jesus is despicable worship. Any worship that is not amazed, any worship that is not in awe, any worship that does not transform our whole heart, any worship that does not capture just more than our actions, but our hearts is of no value to God. Our worship must be centered on Christ. So this morning, let us join our voices together in that worship. Let us join our voices together in worship that is pleasing, that is acceptable to God, not just here this morning, but each and every day of our lives to live lives of worship focused on God in Christ. Malachi says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, will my name be great among the nations. Let it be so here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in great need of you, in great need of one who will come and rescue us, one who will come and save us. And we marvel that one did come, that one has come to rescue us and save us. God, let us not just bow our knees, but bow our hearts to you. To you, Jesus, the one who is deserving of our worship. Today, tomorrow, and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.